0: Um, I'd like to start off this morning by asking you a question. And that question is, do you see your desperate need to run to Jesus? You know, I was thinking a lot about uh, Gus this week. Uh, Gus was my mom's uh, significant other for a number of years. And, you know, by looking at him, you would never guess that he was in his 80s. He was a very strong, robust man. Uh, In fact, he put a lot of 50-somethings to shame. And I I just remember he was like the Energizer bunny. He was just go, 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 doing yard work, fixing things around the house, You know, lifting up my mother's air conditioning unit and putting it up in the window. I mean, he was just... Amazing. I just remember him, you know, watching him scale up the ladder to the second story of our house and get on the roof and clean out the gutters. And I I was just amazed by that. Just an amazing man. He had less gray hair than I do at this point in my life, which is, uh, I just remember that, how youthful he acted and looked. And then something changed with Gus. And then we noticed he seemed to be always tired. He kind of fall asleep in the middle of a conversation you're having with him. He couldn't lift things. That even my mom, you know, had no problem lifting, and and he, you know, was having back pain all the time, which wasn't that uncommon. But then he said something about a pain inside, and you know, my mom begged him to go to the doctor, and he just refused. And this went on for months and months and months, and finally, when Thanksgiving rolled around, my mom expressed her concerns to his son Andrew, and I'm not sure what happened. Uh, With Andrew. My my hunch is he probably talked to Gus, and Gus probably didn't listen to him either, but that was Thanksgiving, and by the time spring rolled around, Gus was so pale that his granddaughter, who was a registered nurse, took one look at him and said, something is wrong. He's got internal bleeding somewhere, and she forced him to go to the doctor, and that's when they found the colon cancer, and Gus had surgery, and they took out the tumor, and he perked up a little bit after that. Um, but you know, a month or two later, he was right back in the hospital because the cancer had spread to his kidneys. And they removed one of his kidneys, but they discovered that the cancer was so aggressive. And it had just progressed so far that within a week or two, Gus was gone. And I remember, you know, I had just gotten to St. Louis to begin seminary, and I was about to Start summer Greek, and I got the phone call, and I found myself hopping on a plane to go up to New York for Gus's funeral. And you know, it it's still it's still frustrating to me even now. You know, I I just you know, what if Gus had just gotten regular physicals, right? What if he had just gotten that colonoscopy that they recommend? You know, what if he had just gone to the doctor at the first signs that something was wrong? I mean, Gus's unwillingness to recognize his need. And his stubbornness in getting help you know turned a concerning situation into a desperate situation. And then a desperate situation into a hopeless one. Shaving what was most likely years off of his vibrant life. But you know, the truth is, is that we're all spiritual gusses, aren't we? I mean, we all have this desperate need to run to Jesus, but we struggle with going to him for whatever reason. You know, we all have our reasons why we avoid running to the great position of souls. I mean, maybe we are in denial about how desperate we really are. Maybe we're kind of ignoring it and hoping it'll go away. Or maybe we're afraid to face the truth about our true condition. Maybe we can think we can handle on our own. Or maybe we struggle with believing that Jesus even wants us to run to him, or worse yet, that even if we do run to him, that he really won't be able to do anything about it. I mean, whatever the case is, we all face uh, the struggle of how desperate we are to go to Jesus, and we struggle to answer that, that call to run to him. And this passage this morning speaks to us about that, because we're going to be looking at two people who were desperate. They had desperate needs, and when they were all out of options, they came to Jesus, believing that He was able to help him, and hoping, and also discovering that He was also willing to help them. So, if you will, please turn to Matthew chapter nine. We're going to read verses eighteen through twenty-six, and as we uh, get get there in our in our Bibles, I'm going to ask you to consider these three questions as we read the text. Okay? first one is do I see my desperate need to run to Jesus the second is do I have assurance that Jesus is willing to help me and the third is do I have confidence that Jesus is able to help me so whether you turn pages or swipe your phone or tap a tablet Please give your reverent attention to the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, and all-sufficient word of God. Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 through 26. While Jesus was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion. He said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. Please pray with me. Father, I am always struck by the the privilege and responsibility of being up here and preaching your word to your people. And I pray that you would equip me even now to be faithful to that task, to let nothing come out of my mouth that contradicts your scriptures or leads anyone astray. And I pray uh, not only for the hearts of my listeners, but for my heart. I pray for our hearts that the truth of your word this morning would sink deeply into us and that we would embrace it and cling to it and that it would change our hearts and our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So first we're going to talk about our desperate need to run to Jesus. You know, first we have this desperate ruler, right? I mean, if you want to turn back there in in verses 18 and, and 19... You know, a ruler came in and knelt before Jesus. His daughters just died. He asks Jesus, just says, listen, if you just lay your hand on her, you know, she will live. And Jesus gets up and follows and begins to follow him back uh, to his house. You know, Mark and Luke kind of give us some additional information here. I mean, first we learn that the man's name is Jairus, right? And then we learn that he's he's not just a ruler, he's the ruler of the synagogue. So before we even have to hear about why he's coming to Jesus, we know that he must be desperate. I mean, Jairus is a very respected and prominent man in Capernaum. I mean, he's the synagogue ruler. He's been chosen by the elders of the congregation. He's responsible for maintaining the building. He's ordering public worship. I mean, you didn't preach, you didn't teach, you didn't pray in the synagogue unless you had gone through Jairus. And he was responsible as the ruler to make sure the congregation was faithful to the Torah, and that nothing unfit took place in the synagogue. I mean, in short, Jairus is the man, right? And there is no way that this man is going to go to some itinerant preacher and his ragtag bunch of disciples and kneel before him unless he is desperate. And we found out, we find out why he's desperate. He's desperate because he's lost. His daughter. She's died. And Luke tells us it's his only daughter. So he is a desperate man who is out of options. And he's a desperate man who runs to Jesus and humbly begs for help. And Jesus gets up and he starts to follow Jairus back to his house. And as he does that, we meet another desperate person, right? We meet a desperately sick woman. And again, this is in verses 19 through 21. Of chapter nine, Jesus rose and followed him, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years—probably a chronic bleeding from the womb of some kind—is what she's suffering from. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. You know what most commentators think that what that is talking about. Did you know that every good Jewish man? had an outer cloak, and they had these little tassels at the corners of that outer cloak. And it was, you know, it was in, in, in response to the Old Testament. And they'd have these tassels to remind them of the law of God. And and most commentary commentators believe that when it says fringe garment, she was reaching out for one of those tassels. If I can just touch one of those tassels, I'll be healed, she thinks to herself, right? And Jesus turns and he says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, let's just take a step back here. I mean, anyone who has a chronic illness, and we're talking about a chronic illness, we're talking 12 years plus here, is going to be desperate because even if it's not debilitating, it is going to wear you out. It's going to bring you to the end of your rope. And on top of that, in her particular case, with her chronic flow of blood, she's probably anemic, which means she's going to be even more constantly weary from being anemic. But, you know, this woman's desperation is compounded by other things. I mean, Luke tells us, for example, that she had already spent all her money on physicians trying to be healed and that no one could heal her. And there are other things, too, to consider. I mean, she's a social outcast. Why? Well, because this kind of chronic bleeding from the womb, according to the law, that made her ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And that meant she couldn't worship in the synagogue. She couldn't participate in synagogue life. I mean, she's basically in a state of continuous uncleanness because of this condition. And that means that everyone and everything she touches also becomes unclean. So she's basically cut off from the lifeline and community of Jewish life and probably branded a woman who's to be avoided. And she's probably also alone. Because if she was single before this condition kicked in, no man's going to marry her with a chronic issue of blood. Who's going to marry, who's going to marry a woman that, you're going to become, that you can't have relations with without becoming unclean? And if she was married before she got the condition, more than likely her husband's divorced her for the same grounds. So she's alone, more than likely. And she's probably tapped out financially, not just because she spent money on all those physicians, but because in that time period, if you were a woman and you weren't married, chances are you had no means of financial support. So it is not difficult to see how desperate she really is. I mean, this is a woman who has nothing to lose, but she's willing to take a big risk in coming to Jesus, right? Right? I mean, to get the healing that she so desperately needs. She's taking the big risk of being outed by someone in the crowd, right? Hey, aren't you that woman that has that bleeding thing? What are you doing here? Right? And then as they realize that everyone she's touching is becoming unclean, she risks being you know, under attack for that. And she risks being rejected by the very person she's put her hope in, Jesus. And in a general sense, she risks going through all this and having nothing change. For having her condition remain. But despite that, she presses through the crowd, right? She's determined to reach Jesus, banking that only touching the tassel on his cloak will be enough to gloriously transform her life. These two people were desperate. Do you see how desperate you really are? I mean, some of you are here, and you really don't see your desperate need to come to Jesus. I mean, some folks here may not even call themselves Christians. You, you maybe have a little desire, interest in even becoming one. And you might have said at some point, you know, this Christian stuff's great for you, but no thanks, right? Or, or maybe you're here, and and you you play church every week. You come here every week, but um, you kind of just going through the motions. You kind of believe it up here, but it doesn't really impact. Uh, your life. I just want to say to you that you are refusing to admit what you know in your heart is true. And that is that things are not the way they're supposed to be. That we live in a world where sin has made this place a tragically broken place. And sin has made you, just like all of us, a tragically broken person. That despite your best efforts, you are not the great person everybody around you thinks you are, and that you've convinced yourself that you are. You know, whether you acknowledge it or not, you have a desperate need to run to Jesus as your Savior. When we all stand before the God of the universe, our Supreme Judge, our holy, holy, holy God, when every one of your thoughts and actions and your deeds and words are held up to light or exposed, what will you say? What will be your defense? You see, just like me, you have a desperate need of a Savior. You have a desperate need for forgiveness. You have a desperate need to be made right before God. And if you're not a Christian, if you haven't run to Jesus to save you, you're in danger of following in Gus's footsteps spiritually. Do you realize that? I mean, you are in a desperate situation. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance, but you're denying that you're sick, that you have a problem. You're you're pretending everything's okay. Maybe you're avoiding embracing the truth, and you keep delaying and delaying making that appointment with the physician of souls. And sooner or later, at some point, if you keep delaying, it's going to be too late. And the eternal terminal diagnosis that could have been avoided is going to be an irreversible and unchangeable reality for you. So I please, I beg you, run to Jesus before your desperation becomes your destruction. Now those of us who are Christians are no less desperate. Yes. We stand in the righteousness of Christ. And because of that, we don't fear any condemnation or punishment from God, but we still desperately need to run to Jesus because our our need of his grace and his mercy doesn't end when we uh, are converted. I mean, we have an unending, desperate need for more and more of his grace. Why? Because in this life, in this fallen world, sin is crouching at the door seeking to trip you up and master you. Because we live in a fallen world that hates us and persecutes us to the name of Christ, a broken world that's filled with all kinds of trials and tribulations that we face. Why? Because we're in marriages that expose our sinful hearts and tempt us to abandon our commitments and the vows that we've made. Why do we have a desperate, unneeding, unending need of grace from Jesus because we're striving to raise our kids in the Lord in a culture that is hostile to holiness and tries to undermine their faith at every chance it has. Why? Because we have a tireless and determined enemy, Satan, who is roaring about like a prowling lion, seeking to devour us. Beloved Christian brothers and sisters, let's not be fooled or have to take confidence in our success or our abilities or our financial security. You know, let's not let our faithful nursery service or or Sunday school attendance or or going to Bible studies lull us into apathy. Okay? Because our desperate need did not end with our entrance into the kingdom. We desperately need to come to Jesus now more than ever. And I pray for you and for me that it doesn't take the rug being pulled out from under us for us to realize this. You may see your desperate need to run to Jesus, but maybe that's not what you're wrestling with. Maybe your motivation to run is being influenced by other things. And we're going to talk about those two other things. Our assurance that Jesus is willing to help us and our confidence that Jesus is able to help us. Let's look at the assurance part first. Our assurance that Jesus is willing to help us. I see that all over this passage, that Jesus is willing. I see his grace, his mercy, his love, and I see them most clearly because I compare my you know my own responses or actions in this context to what how Jesus responds in this passage, right? I mean, my response to Jairus, for example, okay. I mean, let's remember who this guy is. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He is part of the religious establishment, right? The same religious establishment that is becoming more and more hostile to Jesus. The same establishment that's going to brand Jesus a lawbreaker and a heretic and a blasphemer. They'll attribute his miracles to demonic power. And ultimately, it's going to be the religious establishment that will ultimately hand him over to be arrested and crucified. I mean, if I'm Jesus, if I'm Jesus, I'm avoiding this guy, Jairus, like the plague, right? (laughs) I mean, I'm thinking, when he asked me for help, yeah, right, Jairus, are you kidding? I know what's coming down the line, you know? I'm saying, you know what, Jairus, why don't you have your people call my people, work something out? You know, or, you know, I'd, I'd like to help Jairus, but, you know, I've got all these meetings today, And then i got to swing by Ruben's cleaners and get our dry cleaning. I mean, my compassion level for this guy would be zero. And then my own insecurities would kick in, right? I mean, come on, Jairus, you're pushing it. I mean, okay, I mean, cleansing lepers, healing paralytics, that's one thing. But, I mean, raising the dead? I mean, come on, Jairus, does my name tag say Elijah here? You know what I'm saying? And that would be my response. And if nothing else, my own religiosity would come into play. Jairus, you, you, you want me to touch what? A, a dead body? I mean, you know that's going to make me like unclean for a week, right? <laughs> I know she's your only daughter, but I mean, if I can't teach in the synagogue that week, I mean, that's going to kill my ministry here. <laughs> right? And what about you know, the woman with the chronic bleeding? I mean, if I'm Jesus and all this goes down, I'm going to be like, you know, you have some nerve, lady. I mean, you come up here with your, with your superstitious faith, just thinking if I just touch his tassel on his cloak, I'm going to be healed. You, know, you selfishly weave in and out of the crowd, defiling everybody you make contact with, and then you touch me, and you make me unclean. When I have this kingdom to inaugurate, you use some of my power without asking. You try and fade off into the sunset without even saying, thank you, Rabbi. I mean, you should be ashamed of yourself. Aren't you glad that Jesus is so very different from me and from you? I mean, how does Jesus respond to Jairus' plea? I mean, he's, not, he's, he's unfazed by the interruption. He just gets up and leaves with him. He just listens to his Jairus' plea. He asks no questions. He raises no objections. He doesn't make Jairus sign a waiver, right? I mean, Jesus is moved by mercy and compassion and he acts. He just simply gets up and follows Jairus home. And then he grabs the unclean hand of Jairus's dead and only daughter and he raises her to life. That's how Jesus responds. How does he respond to the sick and the hurting and desperate woman? He takes the time for a personal transforming encounter with her. And he says to her, and I can almost see the smile on his face when he says this, take heart, daughter. You know, and I'm, I'm thinking, and I could see her kind of cowering because she's been caught, right? She's trying to make a getaway, she's been caught, and she's almost cowering, and she hears that, and, some, and I can just imagine her thinking, when was the last time someone acknowledged me? When was the last time anyone ever tenderly referred to me as daughter? But that's what he says. He says, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. With just a few words. But those are words that she has longed to hear for these 12 long years. A few words that announces that she's healed, that publicly declares That she is no longer unclean. She's no longer an outcast. She's no longer cut off from religious life. She can be an accepted member of the community. Just a few words and a healing touch has restored all that she has lost. Do you think that this Jesus would be willing to help you if you run to him? Or do you think he'll ignore you Do you think he'll turn a blind eye? This Jesus who says in Mark, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This Jesus? The one who says in John, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That Jesus? Or the Jesus who later on in this book will say, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me ask you, you who so desperately need him, will this Jesus ever turn us away? No. We just have to come to him. We, we don't need to get our acts together. We don't need to have a mountain of faith. We just need to come. Come in our weakness and our brokenness. Come in our sin and our shame. Come in our struggle and our doubts. And Jesus will give us what we need. He doesn't always give us what we want. But he always lovingly gives us what we what we need so why will you not run to him why why won't I well maybe you don't question Jesus's willingness maybe you have doubts about his ability and that's why we're going to talk about our confidence that Jesus is able to help us You know, this this passage this morning also speaks to this. In fact, the whole Gospel of Matthew speaks to this because the whole book is filled with his miracles, his examples that Jesus can do anything. I mean, the whole book is filled with him exerting his authority and his power over everyone and everything. I mean, think about what we've seen him done so far in this sermon series, right? In Matthew 4, it tells us that he went around healing every disease and every affliction. And then we have Matthew 8, right, that catalog of miracles. He cleanses a leper. He heals the paralyzed servant of the centurion. Then he heals Peter's mother from a fever. And then that night, he heals all that are brought to him, and he's casting out evil spirits from people who are oppressed by demons. And Matthew says, with only a word. And that's Matthew saying, this is power. This is authority. Only a word. He does this. And then later on in the chapter, we see him exercise an extraordinary authority and power over nature. Because there they are in the boat, and the storm is raging, and Jesus gets up. They wake him up, and he rebukes the waves, and he calms the storm. And the disciples are so shook up, they are so afraid, and they are just so amazed that all they can say is, what sort of man is this? And then later on, he displays command over the spiritual realm, right? Remember that when he heals two demon-possessed men and he casts the helpless demons into a herd of pigs? It's power. Even the beginning of this chapter, right? We read about how he heals a full-blown paralytic. And then we have our passage. He's healing this woman of a 12-year chronic illness with just a touch of his cloak tassel. And he exerts authority even over death he walks into Jairus' house and he sees the flute players and the professional mourners did you know that people used to hire musicians and mourners when someone died in their family in that time they would they would hire the musicians who would play very loudly and they would hire these professional mourners who were usually women who would just wail and you know weep loudly and 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 the reason why they caused that commotion which it says in the passage is to you know to I encourage other people who are there to mourn, but also to enable the family to mourn without being self-conscious about it. So he walks in, he sees this commotion, and he says, you know, go away. She's not dead, she's she's asleep. And they laugh at him. Are you kidding me, Jesus? She's dead as a doornail. What do you mean she's asleep? And he puts them out. And he walks in that room, and he takes that dead girl's hand, And he raises her back to life. He exerts power and authority even over death. And at the end of this chapter, he heals two more blind men. He casts a demon out of a mute man. He's unable to speak again. And the crowds marvel and they say, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And that's Matthew's whole point. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel because no one like this has ever walked the face of the earth before. You see, Matthew recounting Jesus' miracles, you know, it's not just a matter, they're not just an end unto themselves. You know, these aren't, you know, Jesus' neat party tricks or crowd pleasers. This isn't Matthew commentating on Jesus' budding career as a faith healer. Matthew is authenticating Jesus' claims about himself, and he's proving his own assertions of who Jesus is through these miracles. And who is Jesus? Matthew makes it makes it very clear Jesus is Messiah. He is the Messiah whose kingdom has begun. He is the prophet who is greater than Moses who promised. He is the promised Davidic king that would sit on the throne forever. He is Isaiah's suffering servant who will die for the sins of his people. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Do you think he's able to help you? I mean, did Jairus and the woman... Know these things? I don't know. I mean, maybe all they knew was that Jesus was just going around healing people. But whatever they knew, they came to Jesus hoping and believing that he could help. I mean, what was Jairus' faith based upon? I mean, Jesus had never risen anybody from the dead at this point in his ministry. He had been healing people but not raising them from the dead. And what about the woman? I mean, she again has this kind of superstitious faith that if she just touches a piece of his clothing, she'll be healed. I don't know what they knew, but I know this. Beloved, how much stronger should our faith be in this Jesus? We who know that not just a miracle worker, but Jesus the Savior would be crucified and would rise again from the dead. That this same Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father in power. That he has poured his gift of his Spirit upon us in our hearts. The same Jesus that we long and look for him as the King of kings and the Lord of lords to return. Beloved, how much stronger should our faith be and our belief that he is able to help us? I mean, can you imagine what would happen if we embrace these things? I mean, what if we were really honest of our our, our desperate need, our never-ending need to run to Jesus? What if we really believed that he was willing to help us? What if we just had an iota of faith that Jesus could do anything? I mean, do you think, like Jairus, if we believed those things, we would get on our knees and beg and plead with Jesus to help, even with seemingly impossible requests? Would we be like the woman and do whatever it takes risk it all press through whatever obstacles that come that we have to face just for the chance of a healing touch how would believing these things transform our lives i, I want to leave you with with talking about our hope and what it's ultimately based on Because our hope, the hope of the kingdom, rests on these things that we've been talking about. You see, we look at the cross and we see how desperate we really are. Because we see Jesus dying on that cross, God in the flesh, perfect and guiltless and innocent, bearing the eternal wrath which was rightfully ours. And we see how hopelessly lost we were and are without Jesus. And we run to him. And we look to the cross and we see how willing Jesus really is. The eternal Son of God who willingly veiled his glory in a body of flesh. Who willingly walked among us enduring the trials and temptations and pains of this life. Who willingly allowed himself to be judged and mocked and beaten and crucified by sinful men. Who willingly suffered eternal punishment on our behalf for us. Wretches. Undeserving wretches. And we see what Jesus was willing to do for us on the cross, and we believe that he's willing to pour himself out for us even now. And we run to him. And then we look past the cross, to the empty tomb, and we see what Jesus is able to do. We see a power that conquered death itself that even the grave could not contain. And we see that Jesus is not liar, and he's not lunatic, but he is Lord of all. And we look at the empty tomb, and we see our great high priest who was heard, our great high priest who is both offer of the sacrifice and also the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And we realize that there is nothing that Jesus cannot do, and we run to him. See, all these things are why we have kingdom hope. We have that hope in the here and now. We have that hope that the kingdom can somehow break into the brokenness and fallenness of this world, that struggling marriages can be healed, that the most hard-hearted person can be saved, that the most broken relationship restored. We have hope that the most entangling sin can be resisted, that the new creation can triumph over the old man or woman, that sick bodies can be mended, and that the sheep who have wandered far, far away can be brought back into the fold. And when we don't see these things happen in the here and now, we embrace the hope of the future consummation of Jesus' kingdom. Because, as you know as well as I do, our sovereign, gracious, loving God, who always does what's best for us. Out of his love for us, he always does what's best. And because of that, he doesn't always answer our prayers with the answer that we would like. And sometimes the help that he gives looks a whole lot different than what we envisioned. So, in our desperation in this broken and fallen world, we cling to the assurance that Jesus is willing. And we put our confidence in the fact that he is able. And we long for the King of kings and the Lord of lords to return and to make things right and to defeat every foe and to give us glorified bodies that know no disease and know no sin. And we wait for him to wipe every tear from our eye. And we hope for that day when we know That for an eternity, we will be running to Jesus, not out of desperation, but out of joy, adoration, and celebration. So I leave you this morning with the same two questions that Matthew is constantly throwing in our faces as we read his gospel. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? And what will be your response to him? Let's pray. Father, I just ask, as I prayed earlier, that these truths would sink into our hearts and would make us different men and women and children when we leave here today especially for me. We thank, thank you for your word. And most of all, Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who gave so much for us. And I pray that we would run to that son as we pray in his name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.